Lord, we just pray now that that you would reign here now, that your mind, Lord, would, would be poured out, that your purposes would be accomplished here in this place, Lord, in our hearts. Jesus' name. Amen. The night that, the night before that Jesus was crucified, he shared the Passover with his disciples. And then he prayed. He prayed for himself. And he prayed for his disciples, his followers there. And then he prayed for the church. He prayed for those that would one day follow him. He prayed for us. This prayer is recorded in John chapter 17. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's the message of the disciples. I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't know about you, but I I find this prayer very interesting. Amazing, yes. But also interesting. Interesting in that Jesus could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed for our moral integrity. He could have prayed for our doctrinal integrity, that we would believe the right things. He could have prayed for mass outpourings of the Holy Spirit and power. He could have prayed for our passion and zeal for evangelism. But he didn't. When Jesus cast his thoughts forward to the church of the future, he prayed for unity. And that's all he prayed. Now I'm not saying that this short prayer implies that Jesus doesn't think that righteousness or correct theology or evangelism are important now. But it does suggest a priority. Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, he prayed for unity. He prayed that we would be one. Now there are a number of levels at which this unity can be manifested. I believe that first and foremost, Jesus was praying for the global church. Because to Jesus, to God, there is only one church. It's church with a capital C. So the rock is not the church. And sometimes it can be a bit confusing because we use the language, we say, you are the church. But you're kind of the church. Truth be told, the rock is not the church. The rock is an expression of the church. It is a gathering of some people who are part of the church. But the church is so much bigger than us. And so when Jesus is praying, 
for unity, that his church would be one. He's thinking more than just the rock, though he is thinking about us as well. The rock is part of the church, just as the street is and arises. And our brothers and sisters in the Anglican Church and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics. Yeah, come on now. And all the rest. We are all the church and Jesus prayed that we all would be one. Now on the individual level, right here tonight, we cannot reconcile Lutheran to Catholic. Tonight we can't reconcile brethren to Pentecostal. Truth be told, most of the time we can't even reconcile ourselves to each other. Hence this message. But we we can reconcile ourselves individually to brothers and sisters who think and practice faith in Christ different than the way we do. We can choose to treat them differently than the way we do. We do that by loving them and honoring them and walking humbly with them. Oneness is only possible through Christ. He is the unifying factor. We are one because we are all in Christ. And he is in all of us through the indwelling of his spirit. Disunity in the church is largely the fruit of a distorted revelation of who Christ is. Or in some cases, people ceasing to really follow him at all. And as the church developed different perspectives on who Christ was throughout history, this split the church and diverged into different theologies which created sex of belief, a process that has continued in earnest since the Reformation. To the We get to the point now where it is estimated that there are over 41,000 different Christian denominations. And for the most part, there is discord and disharmony between them. And this was happening long before the great schism of the Eastern and Western churches in the 11th century. The Apostle Paul was dealing with this issue in the church in the 1st century, within decades of Jesus walking the earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here at the Rock, throughout our history, it has never been about following Anthony or following Bruce or following Greg. The purpose here has always been to follow Christ. But even here, just as was the case in Corinth, some have been confused on that issue. We may not be able to reconcile the global church here at the Rock tonight. But surely we need to be 
reconciling ourselves and building unity in this house, in our part of the church. The reality is, and we're seeing this over and over again, there are people here who are arguing and gossiping, talking each other down behind their backs, or just leaving. Just leaving, and leaving with hostility and with baggage. And I see our experiences here at The Rock as a microcosm of the experiences of the church around the world and throughout history. We just keep repeating it. And when we disagree with each other, we pack up and we leave. And we start something new with like-minded people. Or try to find like-minded people we can join. But that's not what God commanded us to do. He didn't tell us to find people who think the same of us and make a church around them until they don't think quite the same as we think. So then we'll need to leave and find some other people who are more aligned to our thinking. We are not told to find like minds, but to be like-minded. And that's very different. This is God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Be of one mind. Philippians 2, 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. 1 Peter 3, 8. All of you be like-minded. This is an action. It requires transformation on our part to become something that perhaps we weren't before. We have taken this to mean that we must gather in community with people who think the same of us on the issues that are important to us. And that is why there are so many Christian denominations in the world, despite the fact that Jesus so clearly desires one church in unity. Jesus would have his church, his body, his bride, unified, one mind, one spirit. How is that even possible? Well, apparently it is possible. Because it did happen once. Though the church was quite small. And it was a long, long time ago. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 verse 32 we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind. Acts chapter 4 is the very start of the church. The Lord poured out his spirit at Pentecost in Jerusalem and amongst the disciples there, he planted the church. And the church that he planted was one in heart and one in mind. What does that mean to be one in heart, to be one in mind, to be like-minded? Is God transforming us to have a hive mind like honeybees? Or the robotic race of Star Trek, the Borg? No. No, he is not. As we have reiterated time and time again, God is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. He is renewing our minds into the likeness of Christ. Or as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 affirms, 
We have the mind of Christ. We just need to start thinking with it. We became like-minded the more we become Christ-like. He is the unifying factor. He is in all of us. The more we allow him to shape our thinking and our feeling, the more we will be drawn to each other, drawn to the spirit of God that is in each other. Unity requires a continuous surrender to the sanctifying work of God's spirit. This is the spirit that is within us already, the spirit that makes us more like Jesus. Unity takes something else as well. It takes love. Before Jesus prayed for our unity that Passover night, he spoke to his disciples. And in John 13, 34, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Unity isn't just something you pray for. It is something each of us has to live for. Unity requires love. We will never see true unity here if we don't love each other. Love enables us to put our differences aside. Love enables us to humble ourselves before each other. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider him equality with God something he, to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' love for his Father and for us was demonstrated in his humility and his sacrifice. And these we are told to emulate. And it is this common attitude that will build unity among us. Love demonstrated through humility and sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describes the love that Jesus talks about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Despite the fact that that verse is shared at almost every wedding I've ever been to, the context of that verse isn't a marriage relationship. Though you can apply it there if you like. It's the church. It's smack between 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the spiritual gifts that God has given us all, and how we must use them humbly with each other. Then on to Corinthians 14, and talking about the use of prophecy and tongues, and how we must submit our gifts and use them with humility. This is about love in the church. This is the way we're supposed to treat each other 
not just our husband and our wife. Love isn't a feeling. It is a heart position that is expressed in the way we treat each other. Our love comes from God. We love and can only love this way because he first loved us this way. He has taught us how to love. And the more we meditate on Jesus' teaching and example, the more we will learn about what that love looks like. For example, in John 13, we read that the night Jesus gathered with his disciples to share in the Passover meal, there was apparently no servant to fulfill the customary role of washing the guests' filthy feet. None of the disciples were prepared to humble themselves to that lowly role, and so Jesus did it. Jesus, their rabbi, their Lord, he took off his robe, he wrapped the towel around his waist, and he washed the filth off his disciples' feet. Jesus' humility in that act was incredibly humbling for his disciples. Right to the point where initially Peter refused to even to let Jesus even touch his feet. But in that powerful object lesson, Jesus showed them that if he could humble himself to serve them, they could humble themselves to serve each other. I've, I've experienced something almost identical to this myself many years ago. It's in my uh, in my second year of, of full time ministry, and I was the director of an Operation Jerusalem urban mission in one of the less uh, advantaged suburbs of Palmerston North. And on the final day of our week-long program, we hosted a lunch party to celebrate our time with the children and what they had learned. And as it happened, the local mongrel mob chapter also had a party that day, celebrating something gang-related. And uh, this party was adjacent to the park that the Palmerston North City Council had freed up for us to use for our program. They were right there next door. And the guys started on the bottle pretty early. And uh, things started to heat up as the day progressed. Uh, getting pro- more uh, rowdy and louder uh, hour after hour to the point that it started to get a little bit crazy and it started to spill onto the park itself. Uh started to get a little bit concerned. And after one rather unpleasant threat from a very large man with a particularly menacing patch, I made the executive call that I couldn't guarantee the safety of my team or the children, the scores of children that were in our care. And so I instructed my leaders to shut the, uh, shut the party down and get the kids home. Now, my team hadn't heard what the drunk, patched mongrel mob member had threatened us with. They just heard me prematurely shutting down an awesome party that they were hosting for the kids, the culmination of our time with them. They were confused, they were disappointed, and more than a few were angry. They did what they were told, but they certainly didn't do it with any grace, and they were pretty dark about it. The most indignant of the team approached the sister, who was my deputy, uh, someone they understood was also bitterly disappointed that I'd shut down the party that she had organised. They told her I'd ruined the mission and they wanted to go home that night. For then there was no reason to stay any longer. 
Now, what my sister Rebecca did next, it's beautiful. It touches me still. She gathered all our, our leaders, the, the volunteer team. She came and found me, and she pulled this big comfy chair out of the hall and put it out in front of the hall on the lawn and sat me down in it. She got down on her hands and knees, and she took off my shoes. She took off my socks, and she had a bowl there prepared with hot, soapy water, and she'd put some essence or something sweet-smelling in it, and she washed my feet, and she massaged them. There was nothing mechanical about it. It was quite tender. She washed it off, and she took her time, and then she dried my feet with, with the towel, And then before all of the team, she honoured me. She thanked me for all the time and energy that I'd put, I'd put into making this mission happen. Uh, thanked me for every good thing that happened and for letting her be a part of it. And then she publicly apologised to me for anything that she might have said or done that would in any way... Uh, dishonor me that would have in any way undermined my authority and she asked me to forgive her in front of the kids and I did gave her a hug and then one by one and she hadn't told the kids anything one by one these the leaders came up and they apologized for anything that they'd said and done uh, to undermine my authority and they thanked me for everything I'd done and and then Rebecca said that she trusted me and believed that any decision I made would have been in the best interest of the children and of the team. And then I had an opportunity to explain what had happened, explain what the uh, what the gangster had said and the reason why I took the action I did and why I didn't tell everyone what was going on. And um, then we had one of the most amazing times of worship that I've ever had. It was very special. Rebecca's humility created the environment that unified us again. It humbled us all, especially me. It's not the treatment that I usually get from people who disagree with me. That kind of humility is not something that we often see here. But that is the humility that Christ modeled. The humility that he called us to follow. John 13 from verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. This wasn't about foot washing. It was just a, an illustration. It was an illustration of what true humility and a servant heart can look like. The question for us tonight is, what does humility and a servant heart look like among us? What do we do when we disagree with each other? What do we do when we don't understand or seems to go against what we've, we've believed in the past? 
What do we do when we're offended by someone or someone's hurt us in the church? Will we follow the well-trodden path and leave and go find somewhere else that we like? Or will we go set up our own group? Or will we answer Jesus' prayer and commit ourselves to unity, humbling our hearts, surrendering our will to God and allowing his spirit to transform our minds to that of Christ so together we can truly be one. We're always going to disagree on stuff. And having the same mind, that is a journey. And that transformation can only happen as we surrender ourselves to it. But not agreeing on on, on things, that's got nothing to do with unity. Unity goes beyond that. Can we love each other even when we don't agree on everything? See, that this is an issue that we've been facing for a few years here now at The Rock. I desperately miss many friends of mine who are no longer fellowshipping with us because we couldn't agree on everything. And for some reason, that separated us. And there were grievances and there were there was offense taken. And somehow we couldn't somehow we couldn't reconcile and work it through. I'm sick of hearing those stories. And I know around the room we are sick of hearing those things. We we have got to get new stories. Stories where we can overcome our differences. Because the truth is what what unifies us, what unites us, what we have in common is so much more than the differences that we have. We have the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit in each of us. Isn't that enough? We follow the same Christ. We have the same ultimate purpose as well. Make disciples. Surely with the big things sorted out, we can, we can look past the smaller things. And as each of us become more Christ-like, we'll find those differences start to disappear. The truth is, to become the church, become the expression of the church that Christ has called us to be here at the rock, we need to do this. We need to find and rediscover this love that he's talking about, this love that he has poured out into us. And we need to move from just throwing it back to him in our worship times, and actually hear the call that he put on us. Love one another. Love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. You could almost argue it's not even a new command. From the from Deuteronomy chapter 5 on, it was love the Lord and love your neighbor. That love for each other has always been there consistently right from the advent of the law right through to now. Love one another. It's not just me and God. It is me, God, and his church, which I am a part of. And I'm either, I'm either building that church with him or I'm pulling it down. Humility hasn't always come easy to me. I have historically been selfish. 
And that's part of the culture that we've all been raised in for the most part. Here in this country, a country of pioneers, the independent spirit is the pervasive one. We want to do things on our own. We look out for number one. We can't help but be consumers. And that attitude seeps into the church as well. So we'll, we'll find the, the church community that suits our preferences. Preference for music. Preference for style of preaching. Have they got a cafe? Yes. Good. Have they got a strong men's ministry which does the kind of events that I like? Do they do paintball? Yes. I want to go to that church that do paintball. Have they got an exciting children's ministry? Good. We'll have a whole list of things. Tick those boxes and that's the church community I want to be a part of. We can't help but be consumers. I don't blame anyone for it. It's the way we're raised. We're bombarded by by invitations and messages to consume. And it's all about us. We make the church that as well. Do you think that's the church that the Lord is building? It takes humility, understanding that the church is not about us. The church is not even about the rock. But for the church to be reconciled to God truly and become who God has destined us to be, it does start here. It does. It starts with me. It starts with me and how I treat you and how I think about you. Whether you agree with me or not. Will I love you? Will you love me? Will you love each other? Will you forgive? Will you try to reconcile and build relationship? This is how unity is made in the church. And this, this is what God is trying to do here. And he's trying to do it all around the world. And it happens when we surrender to God and let his will happen in our lives. God is sovereign, but he gave us sovereignty as well. That In our free will, we can choose what we do. So when we're singing before, he will reign, he will reign, he will reign forever and ever. That's true, he will in a cosmic sense. But we get to choose if he reigns over us. So my invitation tonight is will you surrender that sovereignty back to him again tonight? I don't know if you're carrying any hurts, any grievances against anyone, anyone else in the church, whether it be here at the Rock or anywhere else. But when we hold on to those grievances, that's what builds disunity, disharmony. We need to let those go. We need to forgive past hurts. We need to start exercising love, even if we don't feel it, choosing to love. And in that, in that act of submission, that act of humility, God will build his church. One church. Unified here, unified in Wellington, unified in New Zealand, unified around the world. One church. All right. This actually means something for me. I could, I could just stop now and I could think about people that I have carried grievances. I've worked in, I've worked in three churches now and one parachurch organization. And if you've worked in church staff, oh, it's not too hard to find grievances and hurts. There are things that perhaps I haven't really dealt with, things that I have to let go, things that I have to forgive, steps I can take to rebuild relationships. And I don't know if you're carrying any of that stuff as well. 
but this stuff has an application. And I want to change the way I think about the church as well. I want to think about the language I use. The rock is not the church. It doesn't begin and end with what God is doing here. This is important, and we have a significant part to play in the kingdom. But we are just an expression of the greater church. And so when I think about my brothers and sisters in other communities around the city and around the country, I've got to think of them as brothers and sisters doing their best to follow God as they know him and love them and pray for them just as Jesus prayed for them. And what did he pray? That we would be one. So yeah, I'm, I've, my arrogance of my theology has meant that I would disfellowship people because they didn't believe what I believed, what I thought was orthodoxy. But that's not what Christ prayed for. He didn't pray that we would all have accurate theology. He prayed for unity. That's more important to him. And so I want to do my part. I know if we each do our part, that's when God can do something special. All right, I could bang on about this for a while longer, but I think that's I think that's what the Lord wanted to say. So thank you for listening. And I just, I just want to pray with you now, if that's okay. Lord, I want to thank you that you that you love us. I want to thank you, Lord, that you took a moment. 2,000 years ago, the night that you were arrested, the night before you were crucified, you took pause and you thought of us and you prayed for us and you prayed for the church that would rise up on this planet and you prayed that we would be one. Lord, and you and you wrote in your book what we would need to do. You described and you illustrated and lived out the humility and the love that we would need. And Lord, we have not been faithful, Lord, to following, Lord, your example. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work in our hearts now, Lord. Helping us to be humble before you and be humble before each other. Help us, Lord, to love each other the way that you love us. Help us, Lord, to get that revelation of what true love really is. And I know for one, I don't have this of myself. This is not within me. I need it from you and I need more of it for you. So Lord, I pray that you would continue just to pour out that love and just deepen my revelation of your love. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to forgive those who have wronged me. I pray you'd help me to let go of things which I have let separate me from other believers. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to walk humbly with those who disagree with me. And I would see what truly matters. You, your purpose is Lord, and a common love for you. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in the room now, I pray, Lord, that if there is past hurt, there is anger, if there is uh, unreconciled, Lord, issues with others in your church, Lord, I pray that you would just be moving in their hearts now. Lord, to surrender that to you, to let that go and start healing those wounds. I pray, Lord, even now you'd be building unity as we let those things go and even just in our spirits start drawing closer to each other. And Lord, certainly in in this place, in this community, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to find healthy ways to work through our differences and find unity even when we can't. 
agree on everything. I pray you'd help us just to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and see what it's really about. I pray, Lord, this place will become known as a, as a house of love. That when people join us, even just visiting, they'd have an experience of love. They wouldn't have an encounter with gossip or, or any malice or issues, Lord, but they would see people who love each other beyond anything else. Lord, I, we all know that this is a, mir- a miracle for this to happen. This is the work that can only be accomplished by your spirit. And so we invite you, Lord, to have your way with us because it's us that need to change. And I, for one, want to surrender myself to that process, Lord, to your work and invite my brothers and sisters to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. It's a good point, Paul, just saying that um, I mean, this is one expression of our, how our community meets and another one, a much more intimate one, is our life groups. And we've certainly even experienced within life groups incredible disharmony, huge issues. Some of the, way, some of the things people say to each other, it's, it's tragic. We need, to, we need to take this kind of thing and be living it out and working it out in our life groups, getting things out in a healthy way, forgiving each other, loving each other. So, um, yeah, hope that was all right. Thank you.